You're listening to the Decidedly Podcast. The following conversation contains topics of a sensitive nature. If you or someone you love is experiencing thoughts of suicide, please seek help. You can do so by calling 1-800-273-8255 or texting HOME to 741-741. Both are available 24 hours a day, free, confidential, and will connect you to a trained counselor in your area. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. So how did you feel the first time you sat and talked with a psychologist? Mad. What do you mean? I was mad. Oh, you were mad. Okay. Yeah, mad. Well, I didn't think that it could help me. I, was, I think that's probably so pretty angry. common. I, I remember being, I remember sitting and talking with him. I rem- still remember where the office is. I remember, remember the guy's name. I remember that it looked and felt like this office was designed in the 70s. This guy has to be retiring at any minute. Like tomorrow might be his last day. This guy is so old. And I actually looked him up last week. For some yeah. reason, I was thinking about it. And he uh, he's somehow still, still in business in the same office. Um, so I'm sure it smells <laughs> even older. But I remember sitting there and he asked me after about five minutes, you don't want to be here, do you? And I said, nope. Yeah, that was, that was similar to my experience. I, I went and that a version of that statement came out of this woman's mouth. And she said, you look like you don't want to be here. I said, you have correctly <laughs> identified. You have assessed the situation. You assessed perfectly. the situation correctly. Uh, you know, and so I'm sure there was all sort of negative body language. And, you know, I was, I was reflecting on that as we were talking with Dr. Ullenberger, that the very people who need to talk with a psychologist are very rarely in a, in a framework to accept the wisdom that, you know, and, and expertise that these people have, have to offer. You know, I think one of the big steps is getting to a place where you're really able to listen to what that wisdom is and what those questions are uh, so that you can give the best answers, you know, rather than just a reflective or a defensive answer. So that was, uh, but it was, it was great talking with him today. Yeah, uh, it, it was wonderful talking with Dr. Olberger. Um, Richard Olberger is a clinical psychologist. He's affectionately known as Dr. Zero on Skid Row in Los Angeles. He's an authority on human behavior, worked with community leaders and the Los Angeles Police Department to save hundreds of lives on the brink of suicide. We talked with Richard about how men feel as if they have to suffer in order to have purpose in life, how we have to feel our feelings uh, and allow ourselves to experience those feelings fully, noticing when our emotions are taking over, deciding to reset our thought processes getting fired from your therapist and investing in yourself. I think you're going to learn a lot by listening to our conversation with Richard. I know I did by talking with him. I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Richard. Glad to have you. Hey, guys. Father and son, I love it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to start recruiting my sisters soon. <laughs> Making a family event. Making a family event. <laughs> like my family, you know, the sisters need time away from the brothers. So. <laughs> <laughs> she's happy you got this time with dad. Oh, yeah. No, she's thrilled. 
they're not they're not even asking to be a part of this at all our our, our egos are so fragile we, we... <laughs> nice to meet you gentlemen thanks for having me. you too you, you too. too i was looking at your bio so tell me about this dr zero i see that on the bio I have no idea. What is this Dr. Zero stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so funny how sometimes the most difficult and challenging things in our life, even when we don't realize it, can give birth to different parts of ourselves. And I had been a Los Angeles County crisis responder. I had my name on the shirt. Uh, I was uh, probably featured in uh, news interviews, and, and I was getting a little bit ahead of myself probably in the ego. I was bossing around emergency room doctors and police detectives when they're on the scene because when you're the crisis responder, you have a certain amount of uh, sway when you come out, which is great. Uh, I'm glad that at least here in Los Angeles that we have that collaboration, but we can also get a little bit to our head. So uh, I was summarily one night transferred to Skid Row to work with homeless uh, mentally ill clientele and we were working out of essentially a double wide trailer so talk about like uh like professional fall from grace was was my perception so th this is sort of a, a semi-permanent facility set up near where uh a lot of homeless folks or people who are needing more uh, direct attention or housing? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Los Angeles uh, has the highest per capita, I think, uh, missions located for homeless individuals. So, okay. uh, so, yeah, so they had, while building a clinic, set up like temporary structures. Okay. And it's not something that professionals, like often, right, if you seek to work in Beverly Hills or to work with professional athletes, it's not glamorous. Uh, so while down there, I make a long story short, uh, one of my colleagues, first of all, was an excellent cartoonist on the side. And the only way to give a patient like an appointment, you got about a 10 minute, 15 minute session. If you got a room, you were lucky. If you got a dumpster, you were lucky, a staircase. You give them a post-it note that said, you know, Dr. O, 6.22, 3 p.m., right? And it's scribbled up. They put it in their pocket with all their belongings. They come back in and they hand it through the ticket window so and someone with a microphone like yours sean would say you know sean your three o'clock is here so they couldn't read the doctor oh so eventually they started paging doctor zero okay. so right. so so you know we thought you know but it gave a little bit in short meaning to this like the character who went from kind of skid row to beverly hills every day i was kind of taking my cape off and getting dirty yeah and at the same time getting a real mental health well i don't know i mean it's, it sounds like a bond villain name you know i mean this doctor <laughs> you know it's a bond villain <laughs> you know you, you had mentioned that the county of los angeles had more missions and facilities to help homeless this may be a chicken or egg question. Do you think that that has, was that driven out of a need because there was a large homeless population? Or do you think that that has been more of a magnet to people who need that type of support? Like which, which comes first? It's a great question. And I couldn't help as being someone in this job to be asking myself every day. I mean, you go to like some of these great facilities in Santa Monica and you see people who come in, you look at their driver's license from middle of the country and you say, you know, they were resourceful enough to get on a Greyhound bus and whether it be the weather, the quality of life, if you're without a home and the amount of services that you could get, 
So it is hard to know which is first, probably quality of life in some way, because I think it's really hard to accept help if you are homeless and mentally ill. It may be really hard to trust, depending on the level of trauma you've been through. Um, so the net result right now is that now they're integrating, right? There were the missions to house people, but there wasn't the treatment, or you'd have the mental health without the physical health. Uh, so now the integration seems to be kind of reaching a critical uh, critical mass. Uh, but it's a really good question. You know, one of the things we want to do on on this podcast is to really highlight different talent and individuals with interesting backgrounds that can draw on that wisdom to look to to help with decision making frameworks for for people as they as they come into those decisions in their lives. When you think about the work that you do as a clinical psychologist, in, in particularly interacting with people who need that type of support, what decisions are they having to make in their everyday lives that we probably wouldn't know about? I don't know if there's a catch-all for every individual because all of us have challenges we face and have unique backgrounds that we come from that make those decisions uh, uniquely challenging. Um, so part of it is examining why that, that decision-making may be tough and helping individuals separate out the different parts of themselves that may be competing or causing them to make certain decisions, which may be serving them in a certain way, but not in the way that they ultimately wish to grow. Right. So you may have clients, you, you gentlemen are in the financial world that ha are great savers. They're great at holding yeah. on to things. They're great at protecting. But then you talk to them about investment and risk and their eyes start to start to gloss over. And that can be based on that can be cultural. That can be intergenerational. Uh, you know, it can be, uh, you know, really keyed in the fear around money or scarcity. So helping to break those patterns. First, it's, uh, you know, they're coming, I assume there's hit an obstacle or a wall where this no longer is working for them or it's causing a conflict in a relationship uh, and where it's causing them some distress, right? The level where they reach out is usually a level where it's been brought up or it's come up enough times where it's like, maybe now's the time that I see I need some support to break through this and make better decisions or different decisions. Do you, do you see their situation as a result of a a history of poor decision making, or these folks that have really fallen into uh, unfortunate circumstances through no fault of their own, that just need help with better decision making frameworks. You know, it, you know, it depends. I'm picturing two different kinds of individuals. You know, you have the uh, gentleman who's on Skid Row or who's been to a forensic uh, psychiatric institute, and you look at some of the crimes they've committed. You take those individuals, and this is just my experience, off of drugs off the street and have them in treatment and in a safe environment with a lot of care, their decisions are completely different. Number one, they have support, right? They have treatment teams. They have skills being taught to them. So their thought process about everything from riding the bus to going to a meeting to going on an outing, everything is thought through in a different way. So I think the trouble is when we see someone at that level, if they're deep in addiction and homeless and they're not operating from this place of being grounded or connected or safe, they're literally living in this, you know, fight or flight state all the time. 
very hard to trust your decision-making, right? Because it's just about survival. So uh, as opposed to someone who comes in private practice, we have people that are exceedingly doing very well. They could be very financially successful or some of my clients that are, you know, high-performing athletes or physicians, but they may not feel their decision-making in the relationship realm is so good, right? They, they yeah. can't seem to commit, right? So different structure, different frameworks, um, but equally moving from one pattern to another and looking at, you know, getting uncomfortable to change into a new system. So the decision of suicide is obviously something that you are working with people to, to battle a lot. And, and I think for people who have never struggled with it, it seems like listening to people who who talk about it, it seems like they approach it as if it's entirely irrational. Um, how could you ever decide to, to end your own life? It doesn't make any sense. And, and if you've struggled with it in any way, um, it doesn't seem irrational at all. Uh, when you're, when you're having that feeling a lot of times in, in my own experience, that those suicidal ideations are not irrational. They, they seem very measured. Uh, and you hear that from people who have arrived at a point where they've decided to, to take their own life and they all report the same thing. Hey, I felt calm. I felt peaceful. I felt like, okay, I've arrived at a good decision. What's the process like from your end to work through someone who's battling with that choice? You know, I did crisis assessment. And when you're on that end of assessing for a teenager, for instance, it doesn't feel rational because we know with wisdom, maybe the impulse is just about that situation or that moment in time or those conditions. But there are other individuals that have been through so much pain and don't feel a release from the pain um, that where it becomes a state of suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you say it's a logical choice, I think it's, it feels like the, an answer we're looking for an end to the suffering and particularly for men in my experience, the problem is that if you're living in isolation, if you're willing to withdrawal, if when you're depressed, you go to substances, you know, any of these things that do not connect you to others or, or give you some meaning for your suffering or some purpose, then those thoughts may seem very logical because, uh, it, and it can be merciful, right? I, I'm not going to certainly speak against those who are, I've worked with those who are later in life and uh, or those suffering from terminal illnesses. And, you know, I want to respect every individual's choice and situation um, at what point suffering becomes too, too painful. But for most of us, um, you know, I'd like to think it's, you know, becomes logical because we don't feel we have support or we don't feel there's a place we can go with those emotions. Attaching the meaning to suffering, that, that seems really powerful. It is. Anytime, you know, I was just talking this morning, I believe it's uh, Stephen Colbert's mom uh, that was lost a husband and a child. And therefore, she raised him and she had a faith-based life. Uh, you know, I think it's well documented. And therefore, she raised him to like, you only control today, you know, and to find the meaning in everything. So not that I would ever wish for someone to go through that kind of loss. But if we have some connection to our fathers, to our culture to some learning of from our community around what that loss or purpose may be around pain of any kind, uh, then it can give meaning and therefore, or, or purpose. So, yeah, I think when you know 
what you're living for or you know why someone else suffered or a way to give tribute to it, um, it can give your life, not that it takes it away, but it reduces the burden. Yeah, it helps uh, helps the suffering make sense, right? That, that's um, right. It, it can seem a lot of times like the, the purpose of life is to suffer. And someone who is suffering is, uh, you know, you ask them what the point of life is and they're going to very quickly tell you <laughs> they know the meaning of life. Um, right. And some, for, I mean, you know, just my experience working with more and more men, it becomes a like a badge of honor. We take yeah. it on depending and, and, and there may be, you know, women out there that do this too, but the tendency to take it on, to internalize it and just carry it. Well, that's my job. I carry the, I carry the weight. Yeah. I carry the burdens of my father. I carry the burdens of my culture and, and I'm supposed to just hold it. And we think, well, I'm just going to keep carrying on in the face of it. But, our bodies feel that pain. Our emotions feel that pain. Uh, and trying to pretend that we're not feeling, in, uh, you know, beings is, I think, where a lot more suffering occurs. Yeah. In that uh, disconnection. How how do you straddle the line between, you know, obviously it's unhealthy to consciously avoid all feelings. And as uh, men, we've built a reputation over generations of doing that really, uh, really consistently. Um, but it, it also seems like the opposite would be unhealthy to, to completely give into those emotions and, and allow ourselves to feel every single feeling at all, all, all points of the day, because then it gets in the way of, of our purpose. Um, how do you straddle the line in a healthy way? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm absorbing a lot of emotions every day. So I, some days I come out looking like a, a crying baby, you know, myself, but you know, it all, in all just aside, I think that's where I started to learn. And I learned as a crisis responder that, you know, the Gavin De Becker says, the more you look into the abyss, be careful because it starts to look back at you. Right. So learning strategies that take care of the body, you know, I hope all first responders, anybody who goes into heavy trauma a lot is doing things to learn techniques that incorporate grounding the breath, Right. We know the importance of exercise, anything that teaches stress resilience. Right. Because if our body, if we're, right, you can't go to battle. You can't go out there and focus on your clients if you're preoccupied about every feeling or every thought of your forefathers. Right. Yeah. So there has to be a healthy distancing. There has to be a way in which we feel it and let it go. We feel it and let it go. So it's a continual processing. And I think that we are scared at times if we let in the feeling that it could just overwhelm us, that it would just derail us like a, a Tesla without a recharge. It just automatically pulls you over and puts right. you in a timeout, right? So I think there's a little bit of fear of one, if I've never seen how to handle it or I've never been modeled how to handle it or express it, then I'm not going to know what to do. And I don't want to know. I don't want to be in a situation where I don't know what to do. So it just depends on if we, you know, could learn to build these capacities and these strengths and be willing to work on it. And there's my, no shame in it. Yeah. My, my grandmother shared something with me one time I was over having lunch with her and I was really sad about, you know, whatever the heck. And she started asking me questions like, well, why are you sad? What would make you sad if that happened? How would you feel? And I'm like, why are you asking? I don't want to think about it. I told you it makes me sad. Like, leave me alone. And she said, <laughs> she was a counselor. She said, um, well, Sanger, feelings have a beginning 
a middle, and an end. And they can never end if you don't have that middle. Wow, that's beautiful. But the truth is, if we don't, the processing component, you know, I have my little slinky model here that yeah. I always break out for my clients, right? We're meant to process. We're, if we let it in, it, our bodies will like expand and let in a lot of intensity and will naturally reset, right? We have that capacity within it. So feeling something is not going to um, derail us and stay there. Now, when you sit, look at somebody who's reached a level of depression or chronic anxiety, it's because there's kind of a loop where your thoughts keep resetting your feelings or a trauma, right? Where we start to feel powerless. We, we develop a whole thought and belief system around what happened to us. So, you know, there's a difference between having your feelings, some, you know, going through letting yourself having some intense anger, some intense grief around loss, um, sometimes intense anger, right? Anger is not acceptable. And we don't know how to express it. And so suicide can be some of the theories on depression is it's anger turned inwards. Yeah. So we don't we don't know how to get those feelings out. So the idea is if we can have healthy expression and healthy places to release those feelings, we want to reset. Your body wants to feel good. It doesn't want to carry around this big boulder uh, so it can go out, you know, and, and be there and be living and breathing and playing. Right. We're meant to be alive and having fun. We're not meant to be just carrying around weight, no matter how heavy our background or our, our, you know, whatever our cultural upbringing may be. We want to get back to this reset point. So I was uh, uh, going to some physical therapy for a while and there was a uh, doctor who was helping me. He said, Sean, I'm going to give you some things for you to do on your own so that you don't have to come back here. Uh, he goes, you know, you can come back here and I can fix this, but if you'll do these things, it will, it will help. And my guess is that when you engage with somebody who's needing that sort of, uh, professional help, they've already reached a point where they recognize the help that there are things that you're helping them recognize that help them make an appropriate decision for themselves. Are there things that you share with them that say, hey, keep this one in your, you know, in your back pocket, keep this one in mind. This can be helpful for recognition that you're moving into a phase that might be unhealthy. And this is something you can do. Is there something you did like that? It incorporates uh, the individual's experience, right? The model that I use is comes from, uh, you know, practitioner named Peter Levine and his book, Waking the Tiger, which is about a called somatic experience. So when my clients, I'm, I'm helping them individually notice how stress appears in your body. So if, if for my client, you know, they're getting triggered in a certain way, I want to help them realize what do they need to do to reset their body? What things can help them step away? Notice when stress is coming on, notice when they're feeling big things. For them, anxiety or sadness may start to show up in the stomach or tightness of the chest or tightness of the shoulders. I want to help them, even if you're an ER physician and all you have is three minutes between the ER and your office, what are the ways in which you can be present with yourself, with your body to help let it know that you are releasing some of the stress and that you're under stress, right? So just like metaphors from sports I love to use, just like a batter in the batter's box, 
right, who goes up there with a plan and somebody throws a first pitch curveball and makes him look bad, you may need to step out of that box. You may need to reset your batting gloves. You may need to reset mm. your vision. Take a breath. It takes only 15 seconds, right? But inside, internally, it feels like an eternity of just giving yourself permission. Yes. Like you said, reset the thought process. What's my decision tree? Bring in the breath. Now, this sounds simplistic, but to incorporate these three things in real time takes practice. So ideally, I love it when a client says to me, hey, I've been using what we worked on, right? I was in this meeting. I was with the same you know, coworker or with my spouse and the same thing came up and I was able to make a different decision because I was able to be there for me first. I was able to tune in and therefore I was able to be present in a less reactive way or less triggered way. And, you know, I love it when clients say to me that they don't need me anymore at that stage, right? The idea is not to create a dependency, like you said, on the physical therapist, great as it is, we give you the massage and everything. It's like, right, if I know the tools to take care of my body every day at whatever stage to heal, to feel good. That, that's really powerful. You know, I, I've been fired from a few therapists myself, and it doesn't ever feel good. I'm like, oh, come on, man. I'm, I'm not like a black belt at this yet. Like, you know, I got it. But, but I'll go to this therapist. I'm like, oh, I got to like work on this thing. And then, you know, sure, a few months later. All righty. So uh, you've been coming every week, um, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe monthly, maybe, uh, maybe actually, you know, you're good. You know, Wait, does that, is and, that getting uh, fired from the therapist or is that graduating yeah, through and so. working through an issue? I get, I take offense to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did. That's happened. It's happened more than once. I'm just so aware, you know, I'm just so, I've just mastered the art. Um, there's really no more self-improvement left for me. Yeah, which you is think a brag that's why they told me, like, oh, you're all good. You don't need to come here anymore for this, this sort a, of help. It's a brag and also a, a severe letdown for you because you gotta, you just got to recognize that this is as good as we're going to get. Richard, one of the things that you're an expert in and what your, your book focuses on is the power of listening. So we both, Sean and I, have the uh, benefit of being forced to listen you know, as a part of our careers, too. It seems like a, a silly question, but what is the importance of being a better listener? And I'm glad to be amongst listeners. The importance of being a good listener is that it helps us feel connected and truly in tune with those we're in relationships with. And I think in terms of our relationships, when we really listen and we learn what it is to be fully present, both with our eyes, non-verbally, to be not distracted and to really be listening beyond the words, beyond the surface, that it helps those around us feel safer and closer to us. Mm. Okay. Wow. I love that answer. <laughs> you know what I like about you know what I like about psychologists is you can't ask a psychologist anything without them taking it very seriously. <laughs> They're like, well, I gotta dissect this as much well, as you know, I got the, the webpage Richard Listens, which was given to me by my webpage master. So you know now now, I, now the joke is I have to live you know, live up to it, right? Richard listens but not to his yeah. own family, right? So uh... <laughs> every every now and then you regret that. Like they couldn't have just been the Richard Talks <laughs> guy. Right. I'll make it up for it now. That's why I'm on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe we can help people make better decisions by listening to them. If 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 they'll be safer, um, if 
feel safer around us. That's the goal, right? In, in, in any relationship is to build trust and, and allow this other person to be the best version of themselves and, and to feel safe with one another is going to move us closer to that best version of who we could be. Well, you said it. And especially, I don't know about for you gentlemen, but when it comes to my money, like I, the best therapists I've had have been people that are financial advisors, I think, because it's something so sacred and personal. There's such a family history around money. My father was born in the Great Depression. Right. So having someone who truly yeah. understands your family, what you wrestle with, where you want to go. Um, really powerful, you know, and, and my goal is to do that, you know, emotionally uh, for individuals. But yes, it's it's learning the power of it. And part of the, the zero method, part of the book, you know, my father, I lost him three years ago was I always thought my pursuits, my PhD, my constant pursuit of education was about my mom. Uh, and then after losing my dad, I realized his high school educated self who sold shoes and Subarus he listened intentively, you know, and he wore, this is his work shirt underneath. I wore white t-shirts, you know, he sat in his living room. My friends would come over and people would say, where's Sanger? I, I heard the doorbell 30 minutes ago. And sure enough, he'd be sitting down there with my dad in the living room. And he took a genuine interest in people's lives, wow. you know, and he, he really cared and it was something very inspiring to me because obviously in retrospect and in, in his life, but also uh, every one of my friends remembers and cared about my dad. You know, he was the, the things, the adjectives that they used to describe him were, had nothing to do with his profession or his degrees. Yeah. So um, I think, right, when I pause now to answer that, it's because it has taken on a bigger meaning, right? It's really, we don't know. We don't know who's sitting in front of us or what they're struggling with. You could get in a conversation to Starbucks uh, or be out with a buddy having a couple beers and uh, or talking about their finances, and they could let you know that they're, they're struggling a little bit and uh, they, they need a little, little extra support. So I'm happy to have the book and, and to be that resource if I can in my community. Yeah. As a, as an advisor, I think some of the best moments in this role that I play for people are when they tell me, well, you probably don't even want to be hearing about this or I probably shouldn't even be telling you this. And I'm like, no, this is good. You know, <laughs> this is, this is good. That means you're not putting your money in a box that um, is removed from your, your, your feelings and your values. So tell, tell us about the book. Where can people find it? Sure. Uh, the Zero Method. Yes. Available on Amazon and all online booksellers. You can get your Kindle version uh, or you can get the uh, PDF version. It's about 108 pages. Every 10 pages is an exercise or something to get you a little bit deeper, get you to ask yourself some questions. The best relationship we can invest in today is a relationship to ourselves and understanding maybe what needs we have or what needs have not been addressed in some time and, and, and which are the needs if we address today could help us get to our next level in all kinds of relationships. Are you on social media website? Yeah. Instagram and Facebook is Richard listens and uh, the website, richardlistens.com has a newsletter, all social media and how to get a hold of me. If you ever want to consult about someone uh, who needs help. Perfect. Yeah. Richard, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for spending time with us. Thanks gentlemen. Hard to make heavy topics fun, but it's fun hanging out with the two of you. Well, my, 
my takeaways were, were several. I, I wish we had had more time with uh, Dr. Ullenberg. When, when we look at the decision-making takeaways from that discussion, which sort of moved from suicide prevention to listening, I was reflecting on a couple other episodes that we had, we had, had. One was the uh, episode nine with Eric Maddox about being an empathetic listener. And I originally was thinking the takeaway is we should listen better to, to people and, and help them make better decisions. But really what he was saying was, listen to yourself, know where you are, be self-aware so that you can step back from the emotion of the moment and make a better decision, uh, which is sort of what I, I took away. The other was uh, <laughs> something you said, Sager, which was referencing uh, talking with Lynn Guy, who was on episode 18, which was defining uh, or discovering and, and redefining your grief and talking about how emotions having a beginning, middle, and end, and they can't have an end unless you, you they have a middle. I thought that was really, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So I, I think that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. So those, those are my two takeaways. Mm. One of the things that was a huge takeaway for me listening to Dr. Richard was the relationship that um, men do and should have with their fathers. And so he even told a story about his own father and how the work of his life uh, was transformed and and really transcended into a more meaningful place when he recognized how he was able to honor the spirit of his past father. Um, and I think that's particularly important for men. It's important for, for men and women, but uniquely important for men. Um, as a Christian, I believe that we should honor and respect the the God, the father, but each of us, insofar as, as that we have a father, um, we have a, a man in our life who is a man just like any other ma mortal man, but he is the incarnation of the spirit of the father. And so to have a relationship with our father, whether living or past, uh, to honor the work that our fathers played before us, uh, to build upon that work that our fathers worked before us. Um, is to honor the spirit of the Father. There's something biblically true and powerful about that. There's also something tremendously psychologically true about that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.